So we Jews have what we call holy scriptures, or the Hebrew term for holy scriptures is Kitvei HaKodesh. Kitvei HaKodesh literally means holy scriptures. They got that term from us. We had it first. So we have the holy scriptures. Now, our holy scriptures have all been included by others in their holy scriptures. They took it from us. They stole it from us. Translations that were not so great, um, but they stole from us the holy scriptures. Um, but So we have holy scriptures that we often refer to not as Kitve HaKodesh, but we often refer to by the word Tanakh. Now, Tanakh is really an acronym for three parts of our holy scriptures. Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. Torah means, Torah includes five books. Nevi'im, or it's translated here as the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is Latin for five books, right? Like Pent, Pentagon, five. So it's Latin for five books. So we call it the Torah. In Hebrew, Torah means the teachings. We have the Nevi'im, the prophets. And we have the Ketuvim, scriptures or writings. So let's take them one at a time. The Torah is the teachings from God. The covenant that we have with God is a covenant over the Torah. God said, I am giving you these teachings that include instructions on how you should live your lives. And I'm making a deal with you. You will be my unique people. I will give you my promised land. In exchange, I expect you to follow my teachings. That is the Torah. The Torah was given to Moses. So these teachings were given to Moses. Now the Torah itself has two parts to it. The Torah has the written teachings. In other words, written books that God dictated to Moses. The written books of the Torah include five books, which I'll soon go over, but include five books. It's a large uh, set that is about 80,000 words that we have historically written in unique scrolls. We once had a class on the Torah scroll. We write in unique handwritten scrolls that we've been writing in for thousands of years, these unique Torah scrolls. So that is the, the written Torah. Together with that, God gave Moses lots of information that was tr given to him orally. In other words, he was told lots and lots of information. That information was passed on orally from generation to generation. I believe we did a class not too long ago about the oral Torah. So that, those oral teachings were passed on from generation to generation for about 1,300 years. And about the beginning of the Common Era, about the 100, some 1,900 years ago, we wrote down most of those oral teachings. So they've been written for the last 1,900 years, the oral teachings of the Torah. Those are all the Torah, the instructions. That is the, the instruction manual God give us, gave us as part of the covenant. Now, instructions are only found in the Torah. Instructions only came from Moses. We do have what we call rabbinic instructions, in other, rule, in other words, 
rules that were created later. The Jewish Supreme Council, the Council, the Sanhedrin, has the authority to create different rules. Among the rules they created, such as the festivals of Hanukkah and the festival of Purim, so they created different rules later. The um, prayers, they create different rules. So we do have what we call rabbinic rule, but only the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council, has the right to make rules. No prophet ever can say, God told me new rules for you. Only Moses was able to give us God-given rules, and Moses told us, you will never get any more. So if anyone ever comes to tell you that there are more rules, don't believe them. And if you actually read the Torah, the Torah itself, the five, first five books of the Torah, the five books of the Torah is full of rules. Book one doesn't really have rules, it's story, but book two to four, five is full of rules. But in the other books of Nevi'im and Ketuvim, there are no rules. The rules, instructions, were only given in the Torah itself. So that is the Torah itself that Moses gave us. There's the written Torah, the oral Torah. The written Torah, as we said, we believe was dictated by God, word for word from God. However, in addition to the written Torah, we also have other holy books. What makes these books holy? That they were divinely inspired. They were not dictated by God, but they were divinely inspired. These holy books that... We were written over, and these holy books were written after Moses, from Moses' death about 3,300 years ago. Remember, we did the chronology last week. From about 3,300 years ago from Moses' death, all the way and written for a period of over 1,000 years, uh, sorry, close to 1,000 years, until about 2,300 years ago is when we are the book, the, um, the books of our scriptures were what we call in English canonized or finalized. And so we have those books were written over about a thousand year period. So, and those books were included in two different sets. One is include, include one set of books is Nevi'im, prophets. The other set of books is Ketuvim, writings or scriptures. The difference between these two sets is that the Nevi'im are considered divinely inspired with a higher level inspiration or a higher level prophecy than the Ketuvim. In other words, the prof there's different levels of prophecy. And so the Nevi'im, the prophets, were written with a much higher level prophecy than the Ketuvim, and therefore they're considered holier. Neither are Torah, neither of them are instructions from God. They're all, though, divinely inspired. And so we consider them holy. They're not Torah itself, we consider them holy. But prophets are holier than scriptures. Who set aside these 19 books of our prophets and scriptures, 8 books of prophets and 11 books of scriptures, who organized it? So these books were actually organized by what we call the men of the great assembly, or in Hebrew, Anshei Knesset Hagadola. And Diane, we can do a class just on the men of the great <coughs> assembly. Definitely a topic of the class. But I'm gonna tell you now very quickly who they were. The men of the great assembly was a group of 
a supreme council. We always had a Sanhedrin or supreme council going from the days of Moses until it was disbanded in the 300s. So it went for about 1600 years, from about 1300 BCE until about 300. For about 1600 years, we had this supreme council that was in charge of making all final decisions for Judaism. There was one council that was very unique. And this was at the very end of the Persian Empire, right at the very beginning of the Second Temple period. So this is going back about 2,300 years ago, or the Supreme Council is dated from the beginning of when we date the Second Temple, around 351 BCE. That's the date that we have for this Supreme Council from about from about 351 BCE till about 312 BCE. During that about 40 year period, um, 351 BCE to 312 is the period of this Supreme Council. This Supreme Council, uh, known as the Men of the Great Assembly, was a Sanhedrin led by Ezra. Ezra, the Talmud says, was the greatest Jewish leader ever after Moses. Had Moses not given us the Torah, says the Talmud, Ezra could have done it. So Ezra is our greatest Jewish leader after Moses, unique in that he led the men of the Great Assembly. The men of the Great Assembly have a number of important accomplishments. The Talmud says their greatest accomplishment was theological, which um, we have to discuss in a separate class about the men of the Great Assembly. They were the ones that created our prayers, the whole prayer system as we know it today with the synagogues and the minion and the three times a day, prayers and everything that we know today about prayers, the blessings, the system of blessings. They created all of that as we know it today. The Kiddush, the Havdalah, the, most of the ceremonies that we have, wedding ceremonies, bris ceremonies, um, they created, the men of the Great Assembly. They also set the books of the Tanakh. They decided, they chose the eight books that they felt had a higher level of prophet, were written with a higher level prophecy to go in the book of the, the set of Nevi'im, of prophets, and the 11 books of scriptures that were, what, the, that were a lower level prophecy that went in the set of Ketuvim, in the set of scriptures. Now, we have some accounts of their discussion about what to include and what not to include. They had some, some books that they really debated over, such as one of the real questionable books was the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is one of the most difficult books of Tanakh. And there are some parts, some words in Ezekiel that appear to go against some basic Jewish beliefs, contradict some basic Jewish beliefs, there are also some books in some parts of Ezekiel that appear to contradict some Jewish laws. And so because of that, they were skeptical about Ezekiel. But they knew Ezekiel was a great prophet. They trusted Ezekiel. And so some great scholars managed to resolve the contradictions, explain Ezekiel, to explain away the contradictions. And Ezekiel was included in the books of the prophets. Yes, Elise. That's an excellent question. The men of the Great Assembly... 
but this one, that this one really is. Why did they decide to do it then? Why not earlier? Why not later? The men of the Great Assembly included at least three prophets that we know of, Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi, who we'll go through soon. They were the last three prophets that we have recorded in our history. So essentially, we believe in prophecy. We did a class some time ago about prophets. Um, we believe in prophecy, that God can speak to people. But we don't have record, and we believe there's a way to know if someone's a real prophet or not. We have a whole system of testing. So we don't, we ha we don't have any recorded prophets or any proven prophets for 2,300 years. So around three, that period between 350 BC and 312 BC, um, the pro the, our period of prophecy ended. We, the, we are told that those last prophets knew that they would be the last prophets. So they knew prophecy was coming to an end. And the only ones who can really decide what is legitimate prophecy and what's not are prophets. So they needed prophets to be part of that group to sort of, they, they read through them to make sure they made sense and didn't contradict Torah, as we just said, but they also needed prophets to approve, that God approves with their selection. And so they knew they would be the last one. So that's why they did it then. Yes, Stephen. So you're saying then that it's not closed with them because later on there were books that were rejected, such as Maccabees, which was actually yes. after that. They weren't rejected. They were never considered. They were never considered. Yes. There, was no power. there were books that were rejected, which I'll get to in a sec, in a moment. Yeah. So there were, yes, Sandy. I'm going to get to the details soon. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm going to get to the. I'm going to go through each book in a moment. Let me first give you an overview, and then I'll go through each book. <coughs> He's there. So, so, so. Then anyway, there were so there were a couple other books in Ketuvim that were also questioned whether they should include Mishle, the book of Proverbs, which. Um, we believe was which was written by King Solomon. Brilliant book of proverbs with brilliant statements, brilliant teachings. Um, however, um, they had some questions about some parts that they didn't like, and they managed to resolve every single question. They did include it. Um, they had some issues with the book of Esther. Um, they questioned whether Esther was written with. Um, whether Esther was written with prophecy. After all, Esther, who wrote, her own, who wrote her own book, was a Persian queen married to a Persian king. However, they found actually an allusion in the Torah for the book of Esther. Um, the Torah actually speaks about, in last week's Torah reading, about Amalek about the, that attacked the people. And Moshe tells, and God tells Moses, Tov zod zikaron basefer, write this as a remembrance in a book. And our sages say write this, meaning write about it in the Torah. Write it as a remembrance. It's going to be written about in the book of prophets, in the book of Samuel. And we speak about Amalek. And in the book refers to writing it also in the set of writings. There should also be a remembrance of Amalek. And Haman, we have a tradition, came from Amalek. And so therefore, the book of Esther is the remembrance of Amalek in the, um, in the set of Ketuvim. And therefore, they found this allusion to um, Esther in the Torah. And therefore, they decided to include the book of Esther. They also decided to exclude certain books. Now, later Christians 
took what was the Greek Septuagint or Greek books um, of Tanakh that also, and they also included many other Greek Jewish or uh, Hebrew Jewish books that we had at the time. And so we had books that predated the men of the great assembly. We had books, firstly, as Stephen mentioned, that were written after the men of the great assembly, like the book of Maccabees that talks about the wars of the Maccabees in the days of the Greeks, many years after the men of the great assembly, never even considered, but they were included in the, um, they were included in the Bible, um, in the Christian Bible, um, but they were never even considered for Tanakh because they weren't around. We also had other books that were around um, back then, a number of them that were included, that were not included in Tanakh, but they were books that Jews had, Jewish books. Um, but we, they were not included because we didn't believe, the men of the Great Assembly did not believe that they were um, written with divinely inspired, written with divine inspiration. And therefore they did not, they were not considered holy books. The one book in particular that, um, that, the Talmud, that the Talmud mentions, the tradition of the debate of the men of the Great Assembly that they seriously did consider, was the book of Ben Sirah. Ben Sirah is a book of proverbs, wise sayings. And a lot of wise sayings, brilliant stuff over there. But the Talmud says they found some foolish statements also in the book of Ben Sirah. A couple foolish statements. Since it had some foolish statements, therefore that they could not find any wisdom in it, they therefore concluded it could not have been divinely inspired by its author, who was Ben Sirah. Ben Sirah, the Talmud says, was the son of Jeremiah. Um, it was not divinely inspired. Since it was not divinely inspired, we kept it out. The Christians kept, uh, put it back in theirs. But we kept it out, the book of Ben Sirah. And so in that way, I don't have it. I should have brought it. Yes, I'm sorry. I'll have to get it for you. The Talmud gives a number of examples, but I, I just, I don't have it on me. So those are the books. So the, with that, they concluded that we have five books of the Torah. They didn't create. That comes from Moses already. But they concluded, they, they set eight books of our prophets and 11 books of the um, of scriptures of Ketuvim. Together, we have altogether 24 books. Five of Torah, eight of prophets, 11 of scriptures. Together, five plus eight plus 11 makes 24. We have what's called the 24 books of Tanakh. And um, we put them together. Often they would be in a single scroll. And we found ancient scrolls of Tanakh that would have the entire Tanakh in them. Um, or they would have each book itself in a separate scroll. With time, with printing, we started actually printing the books of Tanakh, while the Torah, for the Torah reading, we still write the Torah scrolls as we always had. Um, we've pretty much stopped handwriting scrolls of most of the rest of Tanakh, with the exception of the book of Esther, which we read from a scroll every Purim, so we still need a scroll from. Other than that, we don't write scrolls. There are some communities that continue to write scrolls of Tanakh and continue to use scrolls of Tanakh. The Jewish community in Vilna did for a very long time. 
They would use scrolls of Tanakh for the Haftorahs, which I've promised a class on. They would uh, you actually read them from scrolls instead of from a book. Um, and they would, uh, and uh, also Yemenite Jews would actually use scrolls of Tanakh um, the um, in, in, a hand in handwritten scrolls. So, yes. Tanakh is an acronym for Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. The three books, the Torah, the, pro the three sets, the Torah, the prophets, and the scriptures. So 24 books of Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. It's an, it's an acronym. Often, the official name for them is Kitve HaKodesh, Holy Scriptures. But Jews historically have always called it Tanakh. Tanakh is the 24 books, five books of the Torah, eight books of prophets, Nevi'im, and 11 books of Ketuvim, scriptures. Yes, Sandy. It's an excellent question. How did our oral tradition transmit accurately? It's a very good question. We've done, we did a class about it some time ago. Um, it definitely deserves another class. It's not something that I can answer in one minute. So, um, but we did. We do believe that we accurately preserved the Torah, the the, the oral traditions. Um, but it's really a subject of its own. Yes. We don't know why God stopped prophecy at that point. Um, there's different kind of theories put out there as to why God would have done that. I mean, God's the one that decides whether to give prophecy to a prophet. God stopped it at a certain point. Why he did it, we don't know. No, but but he did. Question. The question is, that is a fantastic question. <laughs> it is a fantastic know, question. And they, and they, 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 they knew because they were because they knew because of prophecy. They were prophets and they knew as prophets that there would not be any prophets. Let's 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 give them a chance, one at a time. Alex, continue. Possibly, possibly, with the rise of definitely the end of the prophets came with the one of the biggest changes that happened in ancient history, the arrival of the Greeks, who essentially took over the entire ancient world, and the entire ancient world went from being a Persian empire to essentially Greek culture. So, and that it happened exactly at that time. Um, how the two connect, I don't know. Um, now, you may hear, I should point out. Um, there were secular historians in the 19th century, and I mentioned this last week with chronology. Um, in the 19th century, historians were very much agenda-driven. Um, they had an interest in disproving scripture, disproving um, Jewish history, Christian history. Um, 
they were secularists mostly in the 19th century historians. Uh, that's when they developed biblical criticism. So one fellow came up with this theory, one Jewish historian actually, that the Tanakh was actually set um, in the beginning of the common era, in the, at the end of the first century, um, in a um, snoid in Yavne. And there's zero evidence for such a thing, zero evidence. Um, it still remains, you'll often see it as kind of standard um, in history books, but it's a theory that he posited just to kind of change the original theory. There is really zero evidence for it. Yes? It is, again, it's a Jewish book, um, but it didn't make it into Tanakh. Yes. There's a number of those books. There's a book called Tuvia. Um, there's a book called, um, I think, The Man of the, um, the Ten Lost Tribes. There's, there's a couple of books. Yes. Very good question. How do we know the Torah didn't change? Sandy just asked that same question. Um, it's okay. Uh, it's really a topic of its own as to how the oral Torah transferred from generation to generation for 1,300 years orally. Um, we did a class on it some time ago, but we'll do another one. Um, it's not something I can answer in one minute. So I'm going to pass on that question for now. We do believe it's accurate. Let's, let's, let's just accept that for now. Yes, Sandy. He was not a prophet. No. He was leader, but there were members of the Great Assembly that were prophets. But no, we don't know Ezra to have been a prophet. So, so let's go through now the 24 books of Tanakh, one by one, so you'll know what they are. So let's start with the Torah. The Torah has five books. Um, These are the five books of Moses that we go through in the weekly Torah reading every single week. We cover over the year. Um, we're now in the book of Shemot and the book of Exodus. So the first book is the book of Bereshit, Genesis, which essentially tells the story of creation, the story of Noah, and then tells us the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their entire life stories all the way until Jacob comes down to Egypt with his entire family where Joseph is the king. The book of Shemot, Exodus, which we're now in the midst of, is a book that goes through, starts off with the slavery in Egypt, tells, as we've told the last couple weeks, the story of the Exodus, all the way through to the splitting of the sea and the giving of the Torah this week. Next week we have all the laws that were, a number of laws that were given after the giving of the Torah. That's the first half of the book of Exodus. The second half of the book of Exodus tells in great detail the building of the Mishkan of the temple in the desert. The, it was a, a temple that they were able to take apart, disassemble and reassemble easily. The third book of the Torah, Vayikra or Leviticus, is, um, tells us, is essentially a book all of laws. It starts off with the laws of sacrifice. It tells us briefly about the dedication of the temple in the desert. Then it tells us the laws of kosher, laws of ritual purity, goes on to laws especially for Kohanim, for um, priests tells us laws of forbidden relationships, and then goes through many, many different laws, finishing off with a long list of rewards that God will give you if you follow the Torah and punishments if you do not follow the Torah. The fourth book is the book of Bamidbar, Numbers, um, which really tells us the story of their travels through the desert. It starts off with 
the counting of the people. And it tells us how Moses split the people by tribe and then organized them. And they were organized in different camps. The beginning really tells us about their structure. And then we get a few more commandments. And then the Torah tells about how they traveled through the desert, how they got into trouble in different places with the mana, sending spies, um, with Korah, who led a rebellion against Moses, um, the story of Balak and Bilam, who tried to curse the people, uh, the story of Pinchas, who killed um, a Midianite princess. And so we go through essentially the story of their travels through the desert. Then the last book, Devarim, Deuteronomy, which means number two, or in Hebrew, Mishneh Torah, the second Torah, um, is Moses at the end of his life, says, goes through, um, gives a speech to the people, and his speech is basically both telling them many of the stories of their travels through the desert, as well as going over most of the commandments. There are many new commandments in Deuteronomy that are not found earlier, many commandments that are repeated in Deuteronomy. It concludes with Moses again giving us a list of the good things that will happen if we follow the Torah, bad things that will happen if we don't follow the Torah. And then it tells us at the very end of Moses' life, he writes down the Torah, gives it to the people, blesses the different, each of the tribes, and then it ends with Moses' death. So that is the book of Deuteronomy. The um, Talmud has an interesting discussion over who wrote the last eight verses, eight verses before the end of the Torah. It says, Vayamat Sham Moshe, Moses died. So who wrote that last eight, those last eight verses speaking about Moses' death? The Talmud gives us two options. Either Moses indeed did not write, wrote the entire Torah dictated by God, except for the last eight. The last eight verses would have been written by his disciple Joshua. The other um, possibility the Talmud suggests is that Moses actually wrote it before he died. And uh, you could imagine what he felt like writing <laughs> Moses died in the Torah. So the Talmud says he was crying as he wrote it. So those are the books of the Torah. Those are our covenant with God is with the Torah. And this is very important to remember. We only have instructions in the Torah. Our covenant with God is through the Torah. While we have 24 holy books, the Torah is our, is our, connection, is our real connection to God and our covenant comes through the Torah. But we do have, as we said, 19 other holy books, starting with the eight holy books of our prophets. Now, the eight holy books of our prophets are really split in two. There's what we call Nevi'im Rishonim, early prophets, and Nevi'im Achronim, late prophets, and they're split four and four. The first four books are called early prophets. The second four books are called late prophets. What is the difference between the first four books and the second four books? The first four books are really history books. They essentially tell us a story going from the death of Moses, covering a thousand years through the destruction of the first temple. The second half of the, book, the set of prophets, what we call later prophets, but it's really the second half of the set, is essentially books of prophecy. Three individual books of prophecy, and then a collection of 12 books of prophecy. So let me go through them now one by one. So let us start with the first four books 
of the books of prophets, what we call Nevi'im Rishonim, the first prophets, which, as we said, are essentially a history book, but not a regular history book, a history book that we believe was divinely inspired and therefore holy. So the first book is the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua, we believe, was written by Joshua himself. And the book of Joshua speaks of uh, the book of Joshua speaks of the, how the people entered the promised land and the great miracles as they entered the promised land, the Jordan split for them and the walls of Jericho fell, how the people entered the promised land. And then it speaks about how they conquered the land and all of their different battles. It's very tedious and detailed of the different battles, this place and that place. And then it speaks of how they split up the land and which tribe got which cities and where the borders of the different tribes were, all the different details of the land. It's a difficult book to study because we have trouble with the geography. Most of those places described in, in the book of Joshua, and there are hundreds of places described, are no longer recognizable today. We don't know where they are. When, and geographers, historical geographers, have spent a long time um, trying to identify. We have a little geography in the Torah, but Joshua is all geography of the land of Israel because it speaks of all of their battles and all of how they split up the land. And um, we have historical geographers trying to identify all of the different places based on um, signs, based on st studying in the book in detail and trying to figure out where each place actually is um, with limited success, let us say. We've been doing this. The first, the first known Jewish geographer um, that tried to figure out where everything is in Israel was a fellow called Eshtori Haparchi. He was a French Jew who lived in the 1200s. He was expelled from France with all French Jewry in the 1200s and uh, 1293, I think it was, end of the 1200s. And um, he spent his, the, the, most of his life going up and down Israel trying to figure out where everything is. And ever since then, we've been trying to figure out where things are. Um, we have met, there's many books you can buy of biblical atlases to try to figure out where these things are. Um, but there's a, as when we go to Israel, we're, a number of us are going to be on our group. For those that are going, we're going to look at a lot of these things and we'll um, can't trust everything the tour guide tells you. Um, yeah, but, you know, because they always make stuff up wherever they go. <laughs> but um, there's a lot of things where we don't know. It may be the right place. It may not. Um, it's often debated. So we can't use GPS, right? Can't use GPS, right. Or Google, they have now Google Earth, which has a lot of this stuff. Next book, Book of Shoftim, Book of Judges. So the Book of Judges covers a period of, in our history from the death of Joshua until the prophet Samuel. It's a period of about 350 years where Israel was led. Um, uh, the tribes were very much independent. Israel was led by these um, civil leaders called judges who were essentially um, agreed upon leaders that used, uh, that didn't really have any real power, but used their leadership to try to organize the tribes, particularly for war, to when Israel was attacked, to try to fight back their enemies. And so we have a number of different judges that covered this 350-year period. Deborah, who we spoke of last week, um, was the fourth of the judges. And we had a number of others. Samson's one of the more f 
famous of the judges, uh, Yiftach, Gilad, who had a number of different judges from that period. And so it goes through the whole story of the judges. Um, a very um, difficult time for Israel. In other words, they struggled a lot during this period, and at the time they struggled also with their allegiance to God, because they often turned to idol worship, and um, also a time that we don't know that much about. This is really the only book that covers that period. Then we have the book of Samuel. The book of Samuel, um, the, now the book of Samuel was split later by um, Christian scholars later split, split the book of Samuel in two. They thought it was too big, and they split it between, they have Samuel 1 and Samuel 2. For us, there was only one book of Samuel, Shmuel. But for them, there was Samuel 1 and Samuel 2. The, so the book of Samuel actually um, first speaks of the, great, of the great prophet Samuel, who was the spiritual leader of the people at the very end of this period of Judges. And he appoints the first king on God's instruction, King Saul. And Samuel 1 is really the story of Samuel himself, his appointment of King Saul and King Saul's life. Um, King Saul's um, daughter eventually marries David, who after he slays Goliath, um, some of you may recall some details of the story, maybe we're going to do a class on David too. Uh, a lot of new ideas for today. So, um, uh, this, that's the book of Samuel. Saul's killed in battle with the Philistines. The book of the second Samuel 2, which is really part of the same Samuel, um, tells the story of David himself, David's reign, in very, very great detail. Um, David's reign, and it goes pretty much until the end of David's life. Samuel, part of it, our tradition is, was written by Samuel himself. The rest would have been written by David or Solomon um, in other words, not long afterwards, because much of it takes place after, at least Samuel 2 takes place after Samuel's death. But it goes through not just Samuel's life, but also Saul and David's reign. After that, we have the book of Kings. Um, our tradition is that the book of Kings was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Um, the book of Kings covers a period from just before the death of King David. Um, speaks of the final rebellion against King David, his son Adoniah. He had two sons that rebelled against him in his lifetime, Avshalom, which was earlier in his life, and then Adoniah, who rebelled against him at the very end of his life. So it covers that final rebellion, the um, appointing Solomon as king. It goes through Solomon's reign. After Solomon's reign, the kingdom was split in two. And then it goes through the period of kings in great detail, um, all the way until the end of the last king, Tzidkiyahu's death and the destruction of the first temple. This period of kings covers a period of over 400 years. Again, Christian scholars thought this book was too long. They split the book into two, Kings 1 and Kings 2. For us, we have Malachim, the book of kings. Yes, Steve? <coughs> Jeremiah wrote it later. He didn't live 400 years. He wrote it as, as a book covering he wrote as a book later covering a long period of time, just as the book of Judges was written by Samuel a long cover, at the end of the period covering a long period of time. He probably had written record and oral record to work with when writing the book, which those original records that he had have not, have not stayed. As we'll see, Jeremiah's record that he worked with, some of it actually did remain. Um, so, but it was divinely, regardless, we believe it was all divinely inspired. So, while he may have used some of his own knowledge and sources to write it, 
um, God inspired that he should write everything correctly. So the, that's the first half of the Book of Prophets, what we call Nevi'im Rishonim, essentially history covering from, covering from the period of Joshua after the death of Moses all the way to the destruction of the first temple, a period of about a thousand years, just under a thousand years. Then um, the second part of Prophets um, includes Nevi'im Achronim, what we call the, the later prophets, has four books. The first book is the book of Yeshayahu or Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet that lived through the days of um, Uziyahu, Yotam, Chizkiyahu, and Menashe, the kings of Judah. He lived, he died about 100 years before the destruction of the first temple. Or about five, he died about 550 BCE. Isaiah lived through a very difficult period. He lives through the, well, the Assyrian invasion. The Assyrian invasion, while Israel had been invaded by different neighboring countries over the years, the first major invasion of a world power, of a power, a regional power that Israel faced was the Assyrian invasion. Israel struggled with the Assyrians for about 100 years. <coughs> Um, and Isaiah lived a very, very long life, and th he lived through most, most of this Assyrian period. He lived to see the Assyrians capture northern Israel and stay over three stages, capture all of northern Israel, which was its own kingdom, exile all of the ten tribes um, out of Israel. We did a class some time ago about the ten, ten tribes. And um, attack the southern kingdom in the days of King Chizkiyahu, and besieged Jerusalem, and then one of the greatest miracles in our history, when the entire Assyrian army of 185,000 officers all died at the gates of Jerusalem, and um, Assyria falling apart as an empire, and his King Hiskeyahu becoming once again king over all of Israel. So he witnesses all of that, he outlives Hiskeyahu, and sees even his son Manasseh as king. So um, he lives for a very long time. It's a very, very long book of prophecy. It describes a lot of these events in the prophecy. Isaiah also speaks in great detail of the future times. He speaks of a future time of peace. He speaks of a future time of... Um, he speaks of a future time when there will be a redeemer that will come, Moshiach, and he will redeem people, and he will bring peace to the world. No longer people will fight. No longer will there be any wars. Everyone will recognize God. All of Israel will be gathered back to Israel. The temple will be rebuilt. Most of the details about this future redeemer are the one that is, many of the prophets discuss, but the one that's most discussed most extensively is Isaiah. Isaiah also speaks about many Jewish fundamentals of Jewish faith. He speaks in great detail about um, monotheism, believing in one God, God not having any form, God being involved in everything that happens, God having ultimate control. And so he speaks of many parts of Jewish faith. Um, but beautiful prophecies and um, Isaiah's prophecies have um, really been, um, for um, Christians have studied it too, and they've really become um, a guide for people, values, ethics, um, in many, many ways. Yes? No. It doesn't give us dates. But we do have a book that does, and I'm going to get there. We do it. The next book is Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet at the very, very end of the first temple. Um, 
The first temple was destroyed about 421 BCE. So, um, so Jeremiah was a prophet. He lived sometime before um, the he already started being a prophet some 18 years before the destruction and continued for some years afterwards. Um, so he lived during that period about the 400s BCE. Um, he, most of his prophecy are prophecies of destruction. He describes he was a, because he prophesied about destruction before destruction, and he was discouraging, he was bad for the morale, um, the leadership in Jerusalem did not like him. They imprisoned him, they tried to kill him multiple times, and he describes all that in his prophecy. He lives through the destruction, which he describes, and he describes what happened after destruction. And um, so he lives through this whole period. Most of Jeremiah's prophecy are prophecy of destruction, of the terrible things that will happen. He does have prophecy also of hope and of comfort as well. But now, Ezekiel is one of our most interesting, as what I said, most difficult prophets. Um, Ezekiel um, prophesied in Babylon. He was, there were two exiles. The first exile um, was in 438, uh, sorry, 439 BCE. The second exile was in 420 BCE. In other words, Jews of Israel, the Jews were exiled in two stages to Babylon. Ezekiel was exiled in the first stage before the destruction of the first temple. He was in Babylon. He became a prophet over there. His, all of his prophecy is in Babylon. His prophecy speaks about his visions of God, which are very, very interesting and hard to read. Um, of course, the basis of much of our Kabbalah, much of our um, mystical teachings um, are built on Ezekiel's prophecy. Ezekiel prophesies about the future destruction of the, of the temple. Um, he also has very interesting prophecy. He prophesies famously about the dry bones, is one of his famous prophecies, um, about a valley of dry bones that come back to life and prophesies about how all of our people will come to life, um, the belief of the future resurrection, which is a fundamental Jewish belief. Um, and he prophesies about a war of Gog and Magog before the future times and a lot of very, very interesting prophecies. Um, among, he prophesies in great detail about the future times. Um, he deals more with what the technicalities of what the future times will look like than Isaiah, who speaks more of inspirational prophecy. And the end of Ezekiel, the last 10 chapters or so, have a description in detail of what the temple, the future temple, will look like. Now, it's very hard to read Ezekiel's prophecy, so hard to read that when they came to build the second temple, they couldn't figure out what he had said the next temple will look like. So they said, well, if we can't figure it out, we're not meant to build Ezekiel's temple. They built the second temple the way they built it, um, approved by the prophets that they had at the time. Um, they were only a couple years after Ezekiel's death, and they said there is going to obviously be a future temple where the prophets then will be able to follow Ezekiel's description accurately. Our third, I'm sorry, I'm going over time. Our eighth, our, the eighth book of the prophets is Treasar, is a collection of 12 small prophets. Those prophets are Hosea, Yoel, Joel, Amos, Ovadia. Those are all prophecies. Um, uh, Jonah, which is a story of Jonah that we read on Yom Kippur, how God gave him prophecy. He tried to run away from God. Um, and eventually he fulfilled the prophecy of going to Nineveh. Micha, Nachum, Chavakuk, Tzvanya, Chagai, Zachariah, and Malachi. I'm not going to get into the details of each of these prophecies, um, but many of them speak of the future redemption. Many of them are telling the people off for their current sins. Um, 
and uh, many of them are um, words of inspiration. Chagai Zechariah Malachi, as we said with the last three prophets that lived, prophesies about the building of the second temple um, in great detail. Um, then, those are the books of our prophets. Then we have 11 books of scripture. The first of our books of scripture is Tehillim, Psalms. Psalms is, has always been one of the most important Jewish books. Psalms is a book of 150 songs. Most of those songs were composed by David, but there are 10 composers mentioned in Psalms. Most Psalms say at the beginning who composed them. So they were composed over the years by different people um, and put together at a certain point um, into a book of 150 Psalms together. Many of, most of them, again, as we said, are David's and discuss events in David's life or events in Jewish history, beautiful poetry, beautiful songs. Um, some of them um, discuss, we have Psalms by Moses, we have Psalms by Solomon, we have Psalms by Eitan HaEzrahi, we have songs by um, Asaf, we have songs by, um, we have songs by the sons of Korach, three sons of Korach. Um, so, we have, so we have multiple different songs throughout um, Psalms. And there are many beautiful psalms that can really serve as inspiration. Um, and in fact, at some point, commentaries of psalms uh, have over the years told us which psalms are appropriate for which occasions, can be sung at different occasions. Many of the psalms are included in our prayers, in our daily prayers, our regular prayers. We also have a tradition whenever we're in trouble, we always read psalms. If someone's sick, we read psalms. Um, whenever you're... Um, whenever you're in trouble, you read psalms. The psalms have been split um, in two ways. Firstly, for the days of the month, into 30 sections, where every day of the month you read a different section of psalms. Um, it's also been split by the days of the week, which would be a lot larger, where every day of the week you read a another section of psalms. Um, traditionally, most Jews knew psalms by heart. Most Jews knew psalms by heart, most of our grandparents, because they read psalms. Everybody did it. Everybody read Psalms regularly. It was just a Jewish thing to do. And so Jews just knew it. Jewish Jews knew Psalms by heart. So um, there would often be Psalms, Psalm groups, where prayer groups, where Jews would get together um, just to read Psalms, to read Tehillim together, and um, praise God together, pray for things. Um, there still are many Jewish communities. Um, Tehillim prayer groups. Today they have also online prayer groups where you can kind of, they, people split Psalms between them. Everyone does another couple chapters to cover the book. The next book is um, Mishlei Proverbs. Um, is a book of beautiful statements, um, very, very powerful life lessons, um, uh, very powerful life lessons um, of how a person um, kind of should live. And, um, and uh, it was written by, written by King Solomon. The third book is Eof Job. The book of Job, um, we have different traditions as to who wrote it, according to the Talmud. Moses may have written it, or Solomon may have written it. Um, the book of Job is a story about a fellow called Job who was very successful and then horrible things happened to him. And it's essentially a discussion between Job and three of his friends as to why bad things happen to good people. And it's an old question, and it's a very long book that goes into great detail 
each of Job's friends has a different theory as to why bad things happen to good people. And then at the end, God appears to them and says, You're all, you got it all wrong, and he explains it to them. And um, also a topic for another class. So then the next song, the next book is Shira Shirim, Song of Songs. Song of Songs is a love song between that written by King Solomon. Um, and it speaks, it's a parable of God's relationship with our people. And it speaks about how a man has a lover, a woman who loves him. Sorry, who, uh, sorry, a woman has a man who loves him so much and she's waiting for him, but then he disappears and he's not in. Uh, sorry, then she disappears. She's not interested in, in him anymore since she's not interested in him anymore. He goes away and now she's waiting. She wants him to come back. And it's about our relationship with God where we turned away from God and therefore God punished us. And now we regret having turned away from God and we want to turn back to God. And now we're searching for him and seeking him and um, hoping that he comes back. So it's a beautiful song, very, very powerful song uh, um, about our relationship with God, a really beautiful love song. Ruth is the story of Ruth, who was a, um, it's really just the story of, Moses, of David, sorry, great-grandmother, um, who was a Moabite princess who married a Jewish man and then later, after her husband dies, converts to, goes back with her mother-in-law to Israel, converts to Judaism, and ends up marrying a Jewish leader called Boaz and becomes the, the great-grandmother of David. Um, uh, the next one is Echa or Lamentations. It's a book written by Jeremiah um, about the destruction of the temple. It was actually written, the book of Jeremiah describes how the book of Lamentations was written. It was written before the destruction of the temple. God told Jeremiah to write a book about the destruction. And so he writes this book about the destruction and the book got burned by the King Eliakim because he was upset that this book had been written about the destruction. It was demoralizing the people. And we actually read that book every year on um, Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, when we, um, when we mourn the destruction of the temple. The next book um, is Kohelet Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book again written by Solomon um, where he writes also this um, Ecclesiastes is very much written, they say, um, they say while Provus was written when he was younger, Ecclesiastes was written when he was older. Um, it very much, it's, a, it's written by a man who tried all the wealth, and he writes about this, he tried all of the wealth and all the success in this world, and Solomon was extremely wealthy and successful. Extremely, extremely, lived a very, very luxurious life, too luxurious, um, we're told in the Book of Kings. And later he rejects it all, and he found no happiness in it all. And he wrote a book about how you don't ha find happiness in it. Um, it starts with the famous words. <coughs> it starts with the famous words, Hevel havalim hakol havel. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And um, it has famous words, What is the value of all of a man's toil that he toils under the sun? And um, where he points about the futility of, it's a book about the futility of chasing um, uh, chasing um, useless things, chasing materialism. And um, he has the famous words, everything has a time under the heavens, time to cry, a time to laugh. Um, so that's the book of Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. The next book is Esther, um, which is the book of the story of Purim, the, story, uh, the Purim story, which we're going to soon talk about when we get to Purim. And it was written by Esther. 
Um, we read it every, we read it from the Megillah, from the scroll, every year on Purim. The ninth book is the book of Daniel. Now, the book of Daniel is a very interesting book. Daniel was a man who, we really have to do another class just on Daniel. Daniel was a, um, Daniel was a man who was a prince, a, a Jewish prince from the house of Judah, from the house of David, who was captured by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, and raised together with three of his cousins, um, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, in the um, king's palace. And as a young man, um, he, um, he's a religious man. He, they fight as young children to keep kosher in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Um, he prays to God, um, describes his prayer in great detail. But Daniel, um, as a young man, is discovered by Nebuchadnezzar to be a genius. Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams that he cannot interpret. And Daniel is able to interpret his dreams. Later, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, sees writing on the wall. Anyone heard the term, seeing the writing on the wall? He sees writing on the wall, which predicts his demise. And um, no one's able to read the writing on the wall, um, which says, Taka, takal, mana, uparsin. And only Daniel is able to read the writing because it was written in code. And um, then later, Daniel himself has many, uh, then later Daniel has interactions after the Persian conquest of Babylon. He becomes part of the Persian court where he um, deals with King Darius um, and he's thrown into a lion's den by King Darius. And then later, um, but then later, Daniel himself has many visions and dreams. And in his visions, he's told all sorts of things about the future and many calculations of when different things are going to happen. And he gives us detailed calculations of when the future times are going to come. When the future times will come. And they, they actually did, debated whether to include the book of Daniel also in the book of our, books of our scriptures because it has some very strange things over there and they decided to include it after all. It was included. But we had a lot of struggle interpreting. There are, if you Google it, there are many books written on Daniel, people trying to interpret the end, when the end of times will come based on the works of Daniel. Many people thought they had it, and then the time passed, and it didn't happen as he predicted. So, is, that but, the way, is that the place he, he answers to her question? Yes. So the book of Daniel speaks about it in detail. Later, the, the Talmud tells us there was a great Jewish sage called Yonatan ben Uziel who lived at the very beginning of the common era toward the end of the second temple. And he wrote the um, first commentary that we have on the Torah in Aramaic. He wrote it on Torah and he wrote it on the books of our prophets. We still have it today, an Aramaic commentary on the Torah. And he wanted to write it on the book of scriptures. And God told him, don't write on the scriptures at all because then you're going to have to translate and comment on Daniel and I don't want you to explain Daniel. We don't want anyone to understand it. Then the next book is the bo next book is the book of Ezra Nehemiah. The book of Ezra Nehemiah describes how they came back and rebuilt the second temple in very great detail. Um, it's mostly a book about Nehemiah. Nehemiah was uh, well describes the original, how they originally came back to build the second temple, the second building um, after Cyrus allowed them to go and build it. It was stopped by Cyrus's successor, Ahasuerus. Um, later, Darius II allowed them to resume the building of the second temple. Later, Ezra came up from Babylon with the entire Sanhedrin and many large numbers of Jews and 
um, took over leadership and helped strengthen the temple. And later Nehemiah was a um, minister in, a, in the Persian court and was appointed as governor of Judah. It was originally supposed to be called Nehemiah because he was the author of the book. Um, Nehemiah was a little arrogant and therefore didn't deserve. Now Nehemiah was live, one of the members of the great assembly that actually put this together. Nehemiah was a little arrogant and therefore did not deserve that a book be called after his name. So instead they called the book Ezra Nehemiah. Christians thought this book was too long, Christian scholars, so they actually split Ezra Nehemiah into two books, calling one Ezra and the other Nehemiah. We have one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. The last of the books that we have is Divrei Hayamim, the book of Chronicles. Now, most kingdoms had a book of Chronicles. In fact, throughout scriptures, we always refer to different books of Chronicles, the book of Kings, which speaks of the period from King Solomon until the end of the first temple, the period of Kings, refers many times to the book of Chronicles of the king of Judah, kings of Judah, and the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. We don't have the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. We do have the books of Chronicles of the kings of Judah, which we, at least parts of it, which we believe were divinely inspired, that were put in this book of Divrei Hayamim, book of Chronicles. So it's a book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah. The first nine chapters, though, is a book of, uh, is a book of, um, what's the word? Um, family history, family chains. What's the word? Genealogy. It's a book of genealogy. The first nine chapters goes through the genealogy of all of the major Jewish families in the days of Ezra. And it goes through great detailed genealogy. The rest of it, the rest of Divrei HaYamim, is essentially goes through the story of the history of the kings of Judah. It's the Chronicles of Judah. There's a lot of overlap with the Book of Kings. There's a lot of things here that are not in the Book of Kings, a lot of things in the Book of Kings that are not found here. So those together make the books of our scriptures.